All right, everybody, welcome back to the American History Podcast. So today we're going to be looking at this period from 1870 to 1890 that kind of looks at the New South following Reconstruction in the Civil War, but also the Trans-Mississippi West. So like as Western migration is still opening up and the country is expanding, what's going on? All right, so let's get started. So we're looking at a lot of regional inequities that are going to infuriate people like Henry Grady, who's the editor of the Atlanta Constitution newspaper at the time. He liked to tell the story of poor cotton farmer that got buried in a pine coffin in the woods of Georgia when the coffin was really made in Cincinnati, not in Georgia. And kind of the irony of the story is the tragedy of the South. The region had these human and natural resources, you know, a plenty, but very few factories to actually manufacture the goods they need. So in the 1880s, Grady, he is going to campaign to bring about a new South that's based on bustling industries, cities, commerce. The business class and its values are going to displace the old planner class, like uh, Southerners are going to race to out-Yankee the Yankee, he calls it. And kind of like modern alchemists, they're going to transform all these resources into riches. The region encompasses a third of the nation's farmlands, very huge, vast tracts of lumber, rich deposits of coal, iron, oil, various fertilizers to try and overcome all the destruction of the civil war and the loss of the slaveholding wealth, these kind of pillars and apostles of the new South are going to campaign to try and catch up with the North by creating an economy based more on industry and less on agriculture. And for all the hopeful talk of an industrialization, the economy of the post-war South remains agricultural tied to cash crops like tobacco, rice, sugar, and especially cotton. By using fertilizers, planters are able to introduce cotton into areas once considered marginal. Yet, from 1880 to 1900, the world demand for cotton grew, grows very slowly, and the prices fall. Even worse, farms in other parts of the country become larger, more efficient, tended by fewer workers per acre. Southern farms actually become smaller. And this reflects the breakup of large plantations, but it also results from a high birth rate. Across the country, the number of children born per mother is dropping, but in the South, large families still remain very common. More children means more farmhands. Each year, fewer acres of land are going to be available for each person to cultivate. So to free people all across the South, the end of slavery brings hopes of economic independence. After the war, a very hopeful John Solomon Lewis, just as an example, he rented land to grow cotton in Tensas Parish, Louisiana. A depression in the 1870s are going to wipe all that out. He's going to be in debt, renting land every year, and he has to rent again to pay the other year. He rents and rents every year and just gets deeper and deeper in debt. And he's going to be very impoverished like most small farmers in the Cotton South. And despite the breakup of some plantations, the South's best lands still remain in the hands of the largest plantation owners. Few freed people or poor white Southerners have the money to acquire property. And like John Solomon Lewis, most rent land, maybe a plot of 15 to 20 acres as tenants in hopes of buying someday. Cotton was king, money is scarce. Rents are usually set in pounds of cotton rather than in dollars. Usually the rent comes between one quarter and one half the value of the crop. 
Among the most common and exploitative for forms of farm tenancy was sharecropping, like we talked about in the Reconstruction podcast. And unlike renters who lease land and control what they raise, sharecroppers, they simply work a parcel of land in exchange for a share of the crop, usually a third after deducting what they owed. It was rarely enough to make ends meet. Like other forms of tenancy, sharecropping left farmers in perpetual debt. The system might not have proved so ruinous if the South had possessed a fairer system of credit. Before selling crops in the fall, farmers without cash had to borrow money in the spring to buy seeds, tools, other necessities. Most often, only the only source of supplies was the local store where prices for goods bought on credit could be as much as 60% higher. As security for the merchant's credit, the only asset most renters and sharecroppers could offer was a mortgage or lien on their crops. The lien gave the shopkeeper first claim on the crop until the debt was paid off. Year after year, tenants and croppers borrowed against their harvest to use the land they farmed. Most landlords insisted that sharecroppers grow crops that could be sold for cash, such as cotton, rather than things they could eat. They also required that raw cotton be ginned or cleaned of its seeds, baled, and marketed through their mills at a rate they controlled. Sharecropping, crop liens, monopolies on ginning and marketing added up to inequality, crushing poverty, and debt peonage for the South Small Farmers. And debt peonage is where you're paying off a debt through labor when the debtor lacks the sufficient cash or other assets to pay it. And so the slide of sharecroppers and tenants into debt peonage occurred elsewhere in the cotton-growing world. We see it in India, Egypt, and Brazil, where agricultural laborers give up subsistence farming, where they produce most of what they need to live on, to raise cotton as a cash crop during the American Civil War. And that was because the North was preventing Southern cotton from being exported to textile manufacturers in Europe. But when prices fell as American cotton farming revived after the war, growers borrowed to make ends meet, just like they did in the U.S. South. In Egypt, the interest rates were as high as 60%. The pressures on gro cotton growers led them to revolt in the mid-1870s. In India, growers are going to attack prominent money lenders. Money lenders sorry. In Brazil, protesters are going to destroy land records, refuse to pay taxes. So it's not just in America we see this very exploitative and corrupt system. And the crusade for a new South does bring about some change. From 1869 to 1909, industrial production grows faster in the South than it does nationally. A boom in railroad building after 1879 furnishes the region with good transportation. In two areas, cotton textiles and tobacco, Southern advances are going to be very striking. With cotton fiber and cheap labor close at hand, 400 cotton mills are humming by 1900, where they will employ almost 100,000 workers. Most of these new textile workers are going to be white Southerners escaping competition from black farm laborers or fleeing the hard scrabble life of the mountains. Entire families will work in the mills. Older men have the most trouble adjusting. They lack the experience, the temperament, dexterity to attend all the spindles and looms in the cramp mills. Only over time, as farm folk adapt to the tedious rhythm of factories, do Southerners become competitive with workers from other regions of the United States and Western Europe. The tobacco industry also thrives in the New South. Before the Civil War, American tastes had run to cigars. Snuff, which is powdered tobacco that's inhaled, and chewing tobacco. In 1876, James Bonsack is going to invent a machine to roll cigarettes. That was just the device Washington Duke 
and his son James needed to boost the fortunes of their growing tobacco business. Cigarettes suited the new urban market in the North. Unlike snuff and chewing tobacco, they were, in the words of one observer, clean, quick, and potent. Between 1860 and 1900, Americans spent more money on tobacco than on clothes or shoes. In the post-war era, the South possessed over 60% of the nation's timber resources. With soaring demand from towns and cities, lumber and turpentine became the South's chief industries and employers. The environmental costs are high. In the South, as elsewhere, overcutting and other logging practices stripped the hillsides bare as spring rains erode soil and unleash floods. Forests lose their capacity for self-renewal. With them are going to go different uh, wildlife like gold eagles, peregrine falcons, other native species. The iron and steel industry most disappointed promoters of the New South. The availability of coke as a fuel from is going to make Chattanooga, Tennessee and Birmingham, Alabama major centers for foundries. By the 1890s, the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railway Company, TCI, of Birmingham, was turning out iron pipe for gas, water, and sewer lines vital to cities. Unfortunately, Birmingham's iron deposits are ill-suited to produce the kinds of steel in demand. In 1907, 1907 sorry, TCI is going to be sold to the giant U.S. Steel Corporation, controlled by Northern Interests, which uh, Carnegie good old Andrew Carnegie, he initially started his Carnegie Steel company that got bought by J.P. Morgan, who created U.S. Steel. So we're going to get to that a little later in a future podcast. The pattern of lost opportunity is going to be repeated in other Southern industries as well. Under the campaign for a new South, all industries grow dramatically in employment and value, but not enough to end poverty. The South remains largely rural, agricultural, and poor at this time. So why did poverty persist in the New South? Three factors peculiar to the South best explain the region's poverty. First, the South began to industrialize later than the Northeast, so Northerners had a head start on learning new manufacturing techniques. It was difficult to catch up because the South contained only a small technological community to guide its industrial development. Northern engineers and mechanics seldom followed Northern capital investment into the region. Few experts were available to adapt modern technology to Southern conditions or to teach the Southerners how to do it themselves, however much they wanted to learn. Education might have overcome the problem by upgrading the region's workforce were it not for the second factor, school budgets. No region spent less on schooling than the South did. Southern leaders drawn from the ranks of the upper class cared very little about educating poor whites and openly resisted educating black Southerners. Education, they contended, spoiled otherwise contented workers by leading them to demand higher wages and better conditions. Lack of education aggravated the third and most important source of Southern poverty, the isolation of its labor force. In 1900, agriculture still dominated the Southern economy. It required unskilled, low-paid sharecroppers and wage laborers. Southerners feared outsiders, whether capitalists, industrialists, or experts in technology, who might spread discontent among workers. So Southern states discouraged social services and opportunities that might have attracted human and financial resources, keeping their workforce secluded and uneducated. Educated school workers often left for higher-paying jobs in the North. Despite what some Southerners believed, the South remained poor because it received too little, not too much, outside investment. 
Many a southern man noted a son of the region loved to toss down a pint of raw whiskey and a gulp to fiddle and dance all night to bite off the nose or gouge out the eye of a favorite enemy. So, life in the New South was a constant struggle to balance this masculinized love of sport and leisure with the pull of a more feminized Christian piety. So, now we're going to kind of look at what the South was a little like at this time. So, divided in its soul, the South was also divided by race. After the Civil War, 90% of African Americans continued to live in the rural South. Without slavery, however, white Southerners lost the system of social control that had defined race relations for so long. Over time, they substituted a new system of racial separation that eased but never eliminated white fear of Black Americans. So for rural people, a successful hunt, for example, could add meat and fish to a scanty diet. You know, Southern males loved hunting. A lot of them still do. Hunting also offers welcome relief from heavy farm work and for many boys, a path to manhood. Seeing his father and brothers return with wild turkeys, a young Edward Michelhaney longed for the time when he would be old enough to hunt with them. The thrill of illicit pleasure draws a lot of Southern men to events of violence and chance, including cockfighting where you're fighting with chickens and roosters, especially uh, gambling between bird owners and among spectators heightened the thrills, such sport and hard drinking, sometimes brutal culture that accompanied it offended a lot of church going Southerners. They condemned as sinful, the beer garden, the baseball, the low theater, the dog fight and the cock fight. They look down on all these because you know, that violence is off putting to them. Many Southern customers, Customs involve no such disorderly behavior. Work-sharing festivals, such as house raisings, log rollings, quiltings, it gives the isolated farm folk the chance to break their daily routine to socialize, work for a common good. And these events, too, are going to be generally segregated along gender lines. Men did the heavy chores and competed in contests of physical prowess. Women shared more domestic tasks, such as quilting. These community gatherings offered young Southerners an opportunity for courtship. In one courting game, the young man who found a rare red ear of corn could kiss the lady of his choice, although in the school, church, or home under adult supervision, that behavior is discouraged. For rural folk, a trip to town brought special excitement and a bit of danger. Saturdays, court days, and holidays provided an occasion to mingle. For men, the saloon the blacksmith shop or the storefront were places to do business and let off steam. Few men went to town without participating in social drinking. When they were, would turn to roam the streets, the threat of brawling and violence drives most women away at this time. But at the center of Southern life stood the church. It is a great stabilizer and custodian of social order. So many devout Southerners pursue a lot of ideas these ideals like uh, giving up cards, dancing theaters, all these worldly amusements. Uh, but that restraint asks more of people, especially men than many are willing to show, except for maybe like on Sunday by 1870, Southern churches are going to be segregated by race. The black church is going to be the only institution controlled by African-Americans after slavery. And it's going to therefore be a, main source of leadership and identity in addition to comfort within churches, both black and white congregations are segregated by gender too. 
Churches are female domains. Considered guardians of virtue, women make up a majority of members, attend church more often than men did, and ran many church activities. Church is a place to socialize as well as worship. Church picnics and all-day scenes bring people together for hours of eating, talk, services, hymn singing. Weekly rituals could not match the fervor of a week-long camp meeting. In the late summer or early fall, town and countryside alike empty as folks set up tents in groves and listen to two or three ministers preach day and night in the largest event of the year. The camp meeting refired re up evangelical faith while celebrating traditional values of home and family. After Reconstruction, white Northerners and Southerners achieved sectional harmony by sacrificing the rights of black citizens. During the 1880s, Redeemer governments moved to formalize a new system of segregation or racial separation. Redeemers are the white Democrats that came to power in Southern states vowing to end Republican rule that had been established during Reconstruction. The pressure to reach a new racial accommodation in the South increased as more African Americans moved into the Southern towns and cities. And they would be competing for jobs with poor whites and sharing public space especially on railroads and trolley cars. One way to preserve the social and economic superiority of white Southerners, poor as well as rich, was to separate blacks as an inferior caste. Within 20 years, every Southern state had enacted segregation as law. The earliest laws legalized segregation in trains and other public conveyances. Soon, a web of Jim Crow statutes separated the racists in almost all public places except the streets. The term Jim Crow, which denotes this policy of segregation, originated in a song of the same name sung in minstrel shows of the day. In 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to uphold the policy of segregation. Plessy versus Ferguson was a case that validated a Louisiana law requiring segregated railroad facilities. Racial separation did not constitute discrimination, the court argued, so long as accommodations for both races were equal. In reality, of course, such separate facilities were seldom equal and always stigmatized African Americans. By the turn of the century, segregation was firmly in place, stifling economic competition between the races and reducing African Americans to second-class citizenship. Many kinds of employment, such as work in the textile mills, went largely to whites. Skilled and professional black workers generally served black clients only. Blacks could enter some white residences only as servants and hired help, and then only by the back door. They were barred from juries and usually received far stiffer penalties than whites for the same crimes. Any African American who crossed the color line risked violence. Some were tarred and feathered, others whipped and beaten, and many were lynched. Of the 187 lynchings averaged each year of the 1890s, some 80% occurred in the South, where the victims were usually Black. Segregation, lynching, and disenfranchisement were not the only means by which Southern state governments sought to control African Americans and replace the labor lost with the abolition of slavery. Among the harsher and more corrupt practices was the convict leasing system. Southern states leased convicts, predominantly African Americans who were often imprisoned for vagrancy and other minor offenses to plantations and private industry. Employers received cheap labor and state governments large revenues. The convicts were worked mercilessly, poorly fed, housed in dilapidated buildings, and beaten, sometimes to death. This was essentially debt peonage system was what it was. 
And the cost of Jim Crow and other discriminatory practices to Southerners, black and white, is incalculable. The race question trumps all other issues and produced a one-party region where fear of black political participation hamstrung any opposition to all white Redeemer Democrats. Supporting a two-tiered system of public services drained money from Southern treasuries that might have been used for other public purposes. All suffered under the rule of racial separation, whether they realized it or not. Now we're going to look at the West, what's going on in the West. So the black exodusters, they called them, flooding into the treeless plains of Kansas in the 1870s and 1880s were only part of this vast migration West. Looking beyond the Mississippi in the 1840s and 1850s, overlanders have moved over land as opposed to sailing around the southern tip of South America, setting their sights on California and Oregon in search of opportunity and free land. Those without money or power found opportunity elusive. They also found Indians and Hispanos, settlers of Spanish descent, who hardly considered the land free for use by Anglos. And they discovered the West was not one frontier, but many, all moving in different directions. Before the Civil War, the frontier for Easterners had moved westward beyond the Mississippi to the Timberlands of Missouri, but skipped over the Great Plains as the overlanders settled in California and Oregon. A mining frontier pushed east from the Pacific coast following diggers into the Sierra Nevada. For Texans, the frontier moved from south to north as cattle ranchers sought new grazing land, as had the ancestors of the Hispanic rancheros of the southwest. For American Indians, the frontier was constantly shifting and disrupting their ways of life. The varied landscapes of the West begin with the region between the 98th meridian and the West Coast, the Great Plains. It receives less than 20 inches of rain a year, making it a treeless expanse of prairie grass and dunes that the first Anglo settlers called the Great American Desert. The Great Plains could be meaningfully divided into southern and northern zones. In the northern plains, bitterly cold winters made survival a struggle for animals and humans alike. In the south, native people such as the Cheyenne enjoyed milder winters and access to the horses of ranches in northern Mexico. The Great Plains are only part of the Trans-Mississippi West. Beyond the plains, the jagged peaks of the Rocky Mountains stretch from Alaska to New Mexico. Beyond the mountains lies the Great Basin of Utah, Nevada, and Eastern California where temperatures climb above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Near the coast, the towering Sierra Nevada and the Cascades rise, rich in minerals and lumber, and then slope into the temperate shores of the Pacific. Already in the 1840s, the Great Plains and Mountain Frontier constituted a complex web of cultures and environments. The horse, for example, had been introduced into North America by Spanish colonizers. By the 18th century, horses were grazing on prairie grass across the Great Plains. By the 19th century, the Comanche, Cheyenne, Apache, and other tribes had become master riders and hunters who could shoot their arrows with deadly accuracy at a full gallop. The new mobility of the Plains Indians far extended the area in which they could hunt buffalo. Their lives shifted from settled, village-centered agriculture to a nomadic existence. Some whites embraced the myth of the Indian as noble savage, who lived in perfect harmony with the natural world. And to be sure, Plains Indians were inventive and in using scarce resources. Cottonwood bark, for example, would feed horses in winter when they had no other food. Uh, the buffalo supplied not only meat, but also bones for tools, fat for cosmetics of various kinds, sinews or tendon for thread. 
Yet for all their ties to the natural world, Indians did have an impact on the ecosystems around them, not always for the better. Plains Indians hunted buffalo by stampeding herds over cliffs. Hardly a natural end for the animals and sometimes an inefficient use of this very valuable resource. They irrigated crops and set fires to improve vegetation. By the mid-19th century, some tribes had become so enmeshed in the white fur trade that they overtrapped their own hunting grounds, which could lead to waste and scarcity. Ecological diversity produced a stunning variety of smaller bands, larger tribes, and Indian peoples who nonetheless shared experiences and values. Most bands compone most bands, components of tribes, were small kinship groups of 300 to 500 people in which the well-being of all outweighed the needs of each member. Although some bands were materially better off than others, the gap between rich and poor within them was seldom large and among plains peoples often revolved around the possession of horses and mules. Such small material differences frequent promoted communal decision-making. The Cheyenne, for example, employed a council of 44 to advise the chief. Indians also shared a reverence for nature, whatever their actual impact on the natural world. They believed human beings were part of an interconnected world of animals, plants, and other natural elements. All had souls of their own, but were bound together as if by contract to live and balance through the ceremonial life of the tribe and the customs related to specific plants and animals. The Taos of New Mexico believed that each spring the pregnant earth issued new life. To avoid disturbing Mother Earth, they walked in bare feet or soft moccasins and removed the hard shoes from their horses. As discoveries of gold and silver are luring white settlers into Indian territory, many adopted the decidedly un-Indian outlook of a Missouri politician named William Gilpin. Only a lack of vision prevented the opening of the West for exploitation he told an Independence, Missouri audience in 1849. What was most needed, cheap lands for farms and a railroad linking the two coasts, that's what we need. In his expansive view, land is nothing sacred. It's only property to be employed, and Indians are merely obstacles to that vision. By 1868, a generous Congress had granted Western settlers their two greatest wishes, free land under the Homestead Act, Homestead Act of 1862, and a transcontinental railroad. As the new governor of Colorado, Gilpin crowed about the West's near limitless possibilities for growth. Scarce water and rainfall did not daunt him, for he believed in the widely accepted theory that rain follows the plow. Early climatologist Cyrus Thomas and amateur scientist Charles Dana Wilbur popularized the notion that plowing dry land released moisture into the air, thereby increasing cloud cover and rainfall. Settlers and speculators in the United States justified their actions as transforming desert into a farm or garden, as did wheat growers cultivating marginal land in southern Australia. An unusually wet cycle from 1878 to 1886 helped to sustain the myth in the States. The fact that such human activity did actually did increase precipitation locally by drawing rain from nearby areas undermined skeptics who rightly argued that plowing produced no change in climate over large regions. Unlike the visionary Gilpin, John Wesley Powell, he knew something about water informing. In 1869 and 1871, Powell led scientific expeditions down the Green and Colorado Rivers into the Grand Canyon. He returned to warn Congress that developing the West required more scientific planning. Much of the region had not yet been mapped, nor its resources identified. In 1880, Powell became director of the recently formed U.S. Geological Survey. 
He too had a vision for of the West, but one based on the limits of its environment. The key was water, not land. Unlike the water-drenched East, water in the parched West should be treated as community rather than private property. The practice would benefit many rather than a privileged few owners at the headwaters. Powell suggested that the federal government establish political boundaries often or defined by large watersheds and regulate the distribution of the scarce resource. But his scientific realism could not overcome the popular vision of the West as the American Eden. Powerful interests ensured that development occurred with the same laissez-faire credo that ruled the East. All right, so the war for the West. We're seeing these competing visions of the West and what it should develop like. So beginning in 1848, a series of gold and silver discoveries signaled the first serious interest by white settlers in the arid and semi-arid lands beyond the Mississippi, where many Indian nations have been forced to migrate. To open more land, federal officials introduced in 1851 a policy of concentration. Tribes were pressured into signing treaties, limiting the boundaries of their hunting grounds to reservations. So, for instance, the Sioux were in the Dakotas, the Crow to Montana, the Cheyenne would be in the foothills of Colorado, where they would be taught to farm. Some, like the Navajo, were ripped from the homelands in present-day Arizona and New Mexico and forced on the Long Walk, some 450 miles to eastern New Mexico. Nearly one in three died there in an infamous 40-square-mile stretch of scorching desert called the Bosco Redondo. It's very similar to the Trail of Tears, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek all went on. Also the Osage. Such treaties often claim that their provisions would last as long as waters run, but time after time, land-hungry pioneers broke the promises of their government by squatting on Indian lands and demanding federal protection. The government, in turn, forced more restrictive agreements on the Western tribes. This cycle of agreements made and broken was repeated until a full-scale war for the West raged between whites and Indians. The policy of concentration began in the Pacific Northwest and produced some of the earliest clashes between whites and Indians. In an oft-repeated pattern, white encroachment led to Indian resistance and war and war to defeat Indian defeat. Sorry. By 1862, the lands of the Santee Sioux had been whittled down to a strip 10 miles wide and 150 miles long along the Minnesota River in present-day South Dakota. Lashing out in frustration, the tribe attacked several undefended white settlements along the Minnesota frontier. In response, General John Pope arrived in St. Paul declaring his intention to wipe out the Sioux. When for Pope's forces captured 1,800 Sioux, white Minnesotans were outraged that President Lincoln at the time ordered only 38 to be hanged. It was, nonetheless, the largest mass execution in U.S. history. The campaign under General Pope was the opening of a guerrilla war that continued off and on for some 30 years. The conflict gained momentum in November 1864 when a force of Colorado volunteers under Colonel John Chivington fell upon a band of friendly Cheyenne gathered at Sand Creek under Army protection. Chief Black Kettle raised an American flag to signal friendship, but Chivington would have none of it. Kill and scalp all, big and little, he told his men. The troops massacred well over a hundred, including children holding white flags of truce and mothers with babies in their arms. In 1865, virtually all Plains Indians joined in the First Sioux War to drive whites from their lands. Among the soldiers who fought the Plains Indians were African-American veterans of the Civil War. 
1866, two regiments of black soldiers formed the 9th and 10th Cavalry under the command of white officers. Their Indian foes dubbed them Buffalo Soldiers, reflecting the similarity they saw between African-American hair and buffalo hair. It was also a sign of hard-won respect. The Buffalo Soldiers fought Indians across the West for more than 20 years. They also served as agents of white settlement, subduing bandits, cattle thieves, and gunmen for the safety of local businesses. They located water, wood, and grasslands for eager homesteaders and laid the foundations for posts such as Fort Sill in Oklahoma. War was only one way in which contact with whites undermined tribal cultures. Liquor and disease killed more Indians than combat. On the Great Plains, the railroad disrupted the migratory patterns of the buffalo and thus the patterns of the hunt. Tourist parties came west to bag the buffalo from railside. As hides became popular back east, commercial companies hired hunters who could kill more than 100 bison an hour, or buffalo. If you ever hear bison or buffalo, they're the same thing. Bison is the actual like technical name of buffalo. But military commanders promoted the butchery as a way of weakening Indian resistance. In three short years, from 1872 to 1874, approximately 9 million members of the herd were slaughtered. Reduced rainfall, competitive domesticated animals, and deadly new diseases, aided by Indian hunters themselves, nearly wiped the plains clean of bison by 1883. In other areas, mined crops, grazing herds, and fences disturbed traditional hunting and farming lands of many tribes. The Sioux War ended in 1868 with the signing of the Treaty of Fort Laramie. It established two large Indian reservations, one in Oklahoma and the other in the Dakota Badlands. Only six years later, however, G Colonel George Armstrong Custer led an expedition into Pahasapa, the sacred Black Hills of the Sioux. He marched in search of the Sioux and in violation of the Treaty of 1868. Custer, a Civil War veteran, already had a reputation as a squaw killer, for his cruel warfare against Indians in western Kansas. To open the Black Hills to whites, his expedition spread rumors of gold from the grassroots down. Prospectors poured into Indian country. Federal authorities tried to force yet another treaty to gain control of the Black Hills. When negotiations failed, President Grant ordered all hostiles in the area driven onto reservations. In the summer of 1876, several all army columns, including Custer's 7th Cavalry of about 600 troops, marched into Indian country. Custer, eager for glory, arrived at the Little Bighorn River a day earlier than the other columns. Hearing of an Indian village nearby, he attacked, only to discover that he had stumbled onto an encampment of more than 7,000 Sioux in Cheyenne. From a deep ravine, Sioux leader Crazy Horse charged Custer, killing him and 267 soldiers. Even in the midst of victory, defeat loomed for Crazy Horse and his people. Although Custer had been beaten, railroads stood ready to extend their lines, prospectors to make fortunes, settlers to lay down roots, and soldiers to protect them. By late summer, the Sioux were forced to split into small bands in order to evade the army. While Sitting Bull barely escaped to Canada, Crazy Horse and 800 with him surrendered in 1876 after a winter of suffering and starvation. Custer's last stand marked the beginning of the end of Indian military successes. The battles did not end the war between whites and Indians, but never again would it reach such proportions. Even the peaceful Nez Perce of Idaho found no security once whites began to hunger for their land. In 1877, rather than see his people herded onto a small, small reservation, Chief Joseph led almost 600 Nez Perce 
toward Canada, pursued by the U.S. Army. In 75 days, they travel more than 1,300 miles. Every time the soldiers closed to attack, Chief Joseph's warriors drove them off. But before they could reach the border, the Nez Perce were trapped and forced to surrender. The government then shipped the defeated tribe to the bleak Indian country of Oklahoma. Once there, disease and starvation continued the destruction the army had begun. Some whites and Indians began speaking out against the tragedy taking place on the Great Plains. In the 1870s, Susan LaFleche, daughter of an Omaha chief and the first Indian woman in the United States to become a physician, lectured Eastern audiences about the mistreatment of Indian peoples and inspired reformers to action. Moved by such reports, the poet Helen Hunt Jackson lobbied for Indian rights. In 1881, she published A Century of Dishonor, a best-selling expose that detailed government fraud and corruption in Indian affairs. Reformers began pressing for assimilation of Indians into white society, ironically as the only means of preserving Indians in a world that seemed bent on destroying them. In 1881, the newly formed Women's National Indian Association and the later Indian Rights Association sought to end traditional Indian culture by suppressing communal activities, re-educating Indian children in boarding schools, and establishing individual homesteads. By the late 1880s, reformers also recognized that the policy of concentrating Indians on reservations had failed to manage Indian-white relations well. With a mix of good intentions and unbridled greed, Congress adopted the Dawes Severalty Act in 1887. It sought to eliminate reservations, which were collectively owned by tribal members, and replace them with plots of land owned by individuals, 160 acres to the head of a family, and 80 acres to single adults or orphans. Senator Henry Lawrence Dawes of Massachusetts and other backers of the law believed that tribes stood in the way of civilizing Indians and that doing away with collective property would eventually do away with tribes. In practice, the Dawes Act was more destructive than any blow struck by the army. And that's because it undermined the communal structure that was at the core of tribal life. As John Wesley Powell had warned, the small homestead farms in the West could not support a family, white or Indian, unless they were irrigated. Most Indians, moreover, had no experience with farming, managing money, or other white ways. Perhaps worst of all, reservation lands had not allocated to Indians were open to non-Indian homesteaders. By 1900, Indian land holding had dropped by almost half of what it had been barely 20 years earlier. Against such a dismal future, some Indians sought protection in the past. In 1890, a religious revival spread when word came from the Nevada desert that a humble Paiute Indian named Wovoka had received revelations from the Great Spirit. Wivoka preached that if his followers adopted his mystical rituals and lived together in love and harmony, the Indian dead would rise, whites would be driven from the land, and game would be thick again. As the ritual spread, alarmed settlers called the shuffling and chanting the ghost dance. The army moved to stamp out ghost dancing for fear of another uprising. At Wounded Knee in South Dakota, the cavalry fell upon one band and with devastating artillery fire killed some 300 Sioux men, women, and children. 25 soldiers were dead as well. Wounded Knee was yet another violent blow against Indian life. But after 1890, the battle was over assimilation, not extinction. The system of markets, rail networks, and extractive industries was linking the far west with the rest of the nation. Free-roaming bison were replaced by herded cattle and sheep. 
nomadic tribes by prairie sodbusters, and sacred hunting grounds by gold fields. Reformers relied on education, citizenship, and allotments to move Indians into white society. Most Indians were equally determined to preserve the tribal ways and separateness as a people. The coming of the railroad in the 1880s and 1890s brought wrenching changes to the Southwest, but with an ethnic twist characteristic of the region. As new markets and industries sprang up, new settlers poured in from the east, but also from the south across the Mexican border. Indians such as the Navajo and Apache thus faced the hostility of Anglos and Hispanos, the settlers of Spanish descent already in the region. Like Indians, Hispanos discovered that they had either to embrace or to resist the flood of new Anglos. The elite, or ricos, often aligned themselves with Anglos against their country folk to protect their status and property. Others, including Juan José Herrera, resisted the newcomers when Anglo cattle ranchers began forcing Hispanos off their lands near Las Vegas. Herrera assembled a band of masked night riders known as Las Gorras Blancas, the Whitecaps. In 1889 and 1890, as many as 700 whitecaps burned Anglo fences, haystacks, and occasionally barns and houses, and attacked railroads that refused to raise the low wages of Hispano workers. With the railroads came more white settlers, as well as Mexican laborers from the south of the border. Just as the southern economy depended on African-American labor, the southwest grew on the backs of Mexicans. Mexican immigrants worked mostly as contract and seasonal laborers for railroads and large farms. Many of them settled in the growing cities along the rail lines of Paso, Albuquerque, Tucson, Phoenix, and Los Angeles. They lived in segregated barrios, Spanish towns, where their cultural traditions persisted. But by the late 19th century, most Hispanics, whether in barrios or on farms and ranches, had been excluded from power. To focus on cities alone would distort the experience of most Southwesterners of Spanish descent who lived in small villages like those in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. There, a pattern of adaptation and resistance to Anglo penetration developed. As the market economy advanced, Hispanic villagers turned to migratory labor to adapt. While women continued to work in the old villages, men traveled from job to job in mines, on farms, and on the railroads. The resulting regional communities of village and migrant workers allowed Hispanic residents to preserve the communal culture of their villages, incorporating those aspects of Anglo culture, like the sewing machine, that suited their needs. At the same time, the regional community also sustained migrant workers with a base of operations and a haven to which they could return and protest against harsh working conditions. The New West met the Old South in the diamond-shaped Blackland Prairie of Central Texas. Before the Civil War, King Cotton had thrived in its rich soil. Afterward, Texas became the leading cotton-producing state in the country. Having embraced the slave system of the Old South, Texas also adopted the New South system of crop liens and segregation, with its racial separation, restrictions on black voting, and biracial labor force of African Americans and poor whites. Yet Texas was also part of the borderlands of the American West, where the Anglo culture of the European Americans met the Latino culture of Mexicans and Mexican Americans. Many Mexicanos had lived in Texas since before the 1840s, when it had been part of Mexico. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as political violence impeded economic growth in Mexico, more Mexicans crossed the Rio Grande in search of work. Between 1890 and 1910, the Spanish-speaking population of the Southwest nearly doubled. In Central Texas, the presence of this large and growing force 
of Mexicano laborers complicated racial matters. The black and white poles of European and African Americans that defined identity in the New South as it had in the old were now replaced by a new racial triad of black, white, and brown who negotiated identity and status among three ethno-racial poles. Unlike African Americans, Texans of Mexican descent sometimes found themselves swinging between the white world of privilege and the black world of disadvantage. And whites could lose status, as had the many Texans who sank into landlessness and poverty on the eve of the First World War. White landowners disdained them as white trash and a white scourge. By the 1920s, a multiracial labor force of landless wage earners worked on giant ranches and large farms across the Southwest. In Texas, the labor force was tri-racial. But in California, it also included Asian Americans and elsewhere American Indians as well. Thus, racial identity in the New West would be more complicated and, for Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, more fluid. Opportunity in the West lay in land and resources, but wealth also accumulated in the towns. Each time speculative fever hit a region, new communities sprouted to serve those who rushed in. The Western boom began in mining, with the California gold rush of 1849 and the rise of San Francisco. In the decades that followed, new hordes threw up towns in Park City, Utah, and other promising sites. All too often, busts follow booms, transforming boom towns into ghost towns. The gold and silver strikes of the 1840s and 1850s set a pattern followed by other booms. Stories of easy riches attracted single prospectors from all over the world with their shovels and washpans. Almost all were male, and nearly half foreign-born. Muddy mining camps sprang up where a prospector could register a claim get provisions, bathe, and buy a drink or a companion. Outfitting these small boom towns siphoned riches into the pockets of store owners and other suppliers and became the most important source of growth. Once the quick profits were gone, a period of consolidation and settlement often brought more order to these communities and larger scale to regional businesses. In the minefields, order and scale meant corporations. They alone had the capital for hydraulic water jets to bust to blast ore loose and other heavy equipment to extract silver and gold from deeper veins. Meanwhile, small independent businesses had a more difficult time surviving, let alone flourishing. Yet in their quest for quick profits, such large-scale operations often led to environmental disaster, even as they spawned riches for owners, managers, and townsfolk. Floods, mudslides, and dirty streams threatened the livelihood of farmers in the valleys below. In corporate mining operations, paid laborers replaced the independent prospectors of earlier days. As miners sought better wages and working conditions and shorter hours, management fought back. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, troops crushed a strike in 1892, killing seven miners. The miners in turn created the Western Federation of Miners. In the decade after 1893, the union attracted some 50,000 members and gained a reputation for militancy. Across the West, the rowdy mining frontier of small-scale prospectors was integrated into the industrial system of wage labor, large-scale resource extraction, and high finance capital. <coughs> Excuse me. As William Gilpin predicted in 1849, the development of the West awaited the railroads. Before the Central and Union Pacific Railroads were joined in 1869, travel was slow and dusty. Vast distances and sparse population gave entrepreneurs little chance to follow the Eastern practice of building local railroads from city to city. Vision and greed overcame immense distance and meager populations. The federal government helped too, often at the expense of other interests. 
1862, Congress granted the Central Pacific Railroad the right to build the western link of the Transcontinental Railroad eastward from Sacramento. To the Union Pacific Corporation fell responsibility for the section from Omaha westward. Generous loans and gifts of federal and state lands made the venture wildly profitable. For every mile of track completed, the rail companies received between 200 and 400 square miles of land, eventually totaling some 45 million acres. Fraudulent stock prices, corrupt accounting, and wholesale bribery involving a vice president of the United States and at least two members of Congress swelled profits even more. General Grenville Dodge, an army engineer on leave to the Union Pacific, recruited his immense labor force from Irish and other European immigrants. Charles Crocker, the Central Pacific, relied on some 10,000 Chinese laborers. With wheelbarrows, picks, shovels, and baskets, they inched eastward, building giant trestles and chipping away at the Sierras, looming granite walls until the lines were finally linked with the Golden Spike at Promontory Summit, Utah, on May 10, 1869. As the railroads pushed west in the 1860s, they helped to spawn cities such as Denver and later awakened sleepy communities such as Los Angeles. Railroads opened the Great Plains to cattle drives that in the 1870s brought great herds to cow towns such as Sedalia, Missouri and Cheyenne, Wyoming, where cattle could be shipped to market. The rail companies recognized the strategic position they held. Just by threatening to bypass a town, a railroad could extract concessions on rights of way, taxes and loans. If a key to profiting from the gold rush was supplying miners, one way to prosper from the West was to control transportation. Westerners recognized that railroads were keys to the cattle kingdom. Cow towns such as Abilene, Denver, and Cheyenne flourished from the business of the growing cattle kingdom. By 1860, some 5 million longhorn cattle were wandering the grassy plains of Texas. Ranchers allowed their herds to roam the unbroken or open range freely, identified only by a distinctive brand. In 1866, as rail lines swept west, Texas ranchers began driving their herds north to railheads for shipment to market. These long drives lasted two to three months and might cover more than a thousand miles. When early routes to Sedalia, Missouri proved unfriendly, ranchers scouted alternatives. The Chisholm Trail led from San Antonio to Abilene and Ellsworth in Kansas. More westerly routes ran to Dodge City and even Denver and Cheyenne. Since cattle grazed on the open range, early ranches were primitive, little more than a house for the rancher and his family, a bunkhouse for the hired hands, and about 30 to 40 acres per animal. Women were scarce in the cattle kingdom. Most were ranchers' wives, who cooked, nursed the sick, and helped run things. Some women, such as Helen Weiser Stewart of Nevada, ranched themselves. When she learned that her husband had been murdered, she took over the ranch, buying and selling cattle, managing the hands, and tending to family and crops. Ranchers came to expect profits of 25 to 40% a year. As in all booms, however, forces at work were bringing the inevitable bust. High profits soon swelled the size of the herds and led to overproduction and lower prices. Increased competition from cattle producers in Canada and Argentina caused brief prices to fall still further. And in the end, nature imposed its own limits. Blizzards, droughts, and floods sometimes pushed losses as high as 90%. By the 1890s, cattle ranching was changing. The open range and the long drives had largely vanished. Large cattle corporations such as the King Ranch of Texas, which grew bigger than the state of Rhode Island, dominated the industry. Only these corporations had enough capital to acquire and fence massive grazing lands, hire ranchers to manage herds, and pay for feed during winter months. As for the cowboys, most became wage laborers employed by the ranching corporations. 
Like the mining industry, the cattle business was succumbing to the eastern pattern of economic concentration and labor specialization. In the 1860s, they had come in a trickle. In the 1870s, they became a torrent. They were farmers from the east and midwest, black freed people from the rural south, and peasant-born immigrants from Europe. What bound them together was a craving for land. They read railroad and steamship advertisements and heard stories from friends about millions of free acres on the plains west of the 98th meridian. Hardier strains of wheat, such as turkey red, imported from Russia, improved machinery, and new farming methods made it possible to raise crops in what once had been called the Great American Desert. The number of farms in the United States jumped from around 2 million on the eve of the Civil War to almost 6 million in 1900. Farmers looking to plow the plains faced a daunting task. Under the Homestead Act, government land could be bought for $1.25 an acre or claimed free if a homesteader worked it for five years. But the best parcels near a railroad line with access to eastern markets were owned by the railroads or speculators and sold for $25 an acre. Furthermore, successful farming on the plains demanded expensive machinery, steel-tipped plows, and harrows, which left a blanket of dust to keep moisture from evaporating too quickly. Permitted dry farming in arid climates, which dry farming is a farming system to conserve water in semi-arid regions that receive less than 15 to 20 inches of rain a year. Threshers, combines, harvesters brought in the crop while steam tractors pulled the heavy equipment. With little rain, many farmers had to install windmills and pumping equipment to draw water from deep underground. The threat of cattle trampling the fields forced farmers to erect fences. Lacking wood, they found the answer in barbed wire, first marketed in 1874. When all was said and done, the average farmer spent what was for the poor a small fortune. Bigger operators invested 10 or 20 times as much. Land and weather favored bigger farmers. Tracts of 160 acres granted under the Homestead Act might be enough for eastern farms, but in the drier west, more land was needed to produce the same harvest. Farms of more than 1,000 acres known as bonanza farms, were most common in the wet wheat lands of the northern plains. A steam tractor working a bonanza farm could plow, harrow, and seed up to 50 acres a day, 20 times more than a single person could do without machinery. Against such competition, small-scale farmers could scarcely survive. As in the South, many workers in the West became tenants on land owned by others. For farm families... Life on the plains meant sod houses or dugouts carved into hillsides for protection against the wind. Tough root-bound sod was cut into bricks a foot wide and three feet long and laid edgewise to create walls. Sod bricks covered rafters for a roof. The average house was seldom more than 18 by 24 feet and in severe weather had to accommodate animals as well as people. The thick walls kept the house warm in winter and cool in summer but a heavy soaking rain or snow could bring the roof down or drip mud and water into the living area. The heaviest burdens fell to women. With stores and supplies scarce, they spent days at a time over hot tubs, preparing tallow wax for candles or soaking ashes to make lye to mix with rendered pork rinds to make soap. Buttons had to be fashioned from old wooden spoons. Without doctors, women learned how to care for the hurt and sick, treating anything from frostbite to snakebite to burns and rheumatism. Nature imposed its own hardships. Blizzards piled snow to the rooftops and halted travel. Weeks could pass before farm families saw an outsider. In the summer, searing winds blasted the plains for weeks. From Missouri to Oregon, nothing spelled disaster like locusts. They descended without warning in swarms a hundred miles long, 
Beating against houses like hailstones, they stripped all vegetation, including the bark of trees. An entire year's labor might be destroyed in a day. In the face of such hardships, many Westerners found comfort in religion. Indians turned to traditional spiritualism, Hispanics to the Catholic Church, to cope with nature and hardship. Though Catholics and Jews came west, evangelical Protestants dominated the Anglo frontier in the mining towns and in other Western communities. Worship offered an emotional outlet, intellectual stimulation, a means of preserving old values and sustaining hope. In the West, as in the rural South, circuit riders compensated for the shortage of preachers, while huge camp meetings offered the chance to socialize. Both also brought contact with the outside world beyond the prairie a little closer. In many communities, it was the churches that first instilled order into public life, addressing local problems such as the need for schools or charity for the poor. Not all Westerners lived in such isolation. By 1890, the percentage of those living in cities of 10,000 or more was greater than in any other section of the country except the Northeast. Some Western cities, San Antonio, El Paso, Los Angeles, were old Spanish towns whose growth had been reignited by the westward march of Anglo migrants, the northward push of Mexican immigrants, and the spread of railroads. Other cities, such as Portland near the Columbia River in Oregon, blossomed because they stood astride commercial routes. Still others, such as Wichita, Kansas, arose to serve the cattle and mining booms. As technology freed people from the need to produce their own food and clothing, Westerners turned to the business of supplying goods and services, enterprises that required the labor of densely populated cities. Denver was typical. Founded in 1859, the city profited from the discovery of gold in nearby Cherry Creek. The completion of the Denver Pacific and Kansas Pacific Railroad sparked a second growth spurt in the 1870s. By the 1890s, with a population of over 100,000, it ranked behind only Los Angeles and Omaha among Western cities. Like much of the urban West, Denver grew outward rather than upward, breaking the pattern set by the cramped cities of the East. In the West, such urban sprawl produced cities with sharply divided districts for business, government, and industry. Workers lived in one section of town, managers, owners, and wealthy city, wealthier citizens in another. All right, so just this last little bit in here. So in its cities or on its open ranges, deep in its mine shafts or on the sun-soaked fields of its huge bonanza farms, the West was being linked to the world economy. Longhorn cattle that grazed on Texas prairies fed city dwellers in the eastern United States and in Europe as well. <clears throat> Wood from the forests of the Pacific Northwest found its way into hulls of British schooners and the furniture that adorned the parlors of Paris. Wheat grown on the Great Plains competed with grain from South America and Australia. Gold and silver mined in the Rockies were minted into coins all around the world. The ceaseless search for Western resources depended ultimately on money. As raw materials flowed out of the region, capital flowed in, most of it from the East and from Europe. Foreign investment varied from industry to industry, but generally came in two forms, direct stock purchases and loans to per Western corporations and individuals. The great open-range cattle boom of the 1870s and 1880s, for example, brought an estimated $45 million into the Western livestock industry from Great Britain alone. By 1887, Congress had become so alarmed at foreign ownership of Western land that it enacted the Alien Land Law. This prohibited the purchase of any land in Western territories by foreign corporations or by individuals who did not intend to become citizens. Westerners were becoming part of a vast network of production and trade that spanned the globe. Between 1865 and 1915, world population increased by more than 50% and demand mushroomed. 
better and cheaper transportation fed by a new industrial order allowed Westerners to supply raw materials and agricultural goods to places they knew only as exotic names on a map. Still, global reach came into price. Decisions made elsewhere, in London and Paris, Tokyo and Buenos Aires, now determined the prices that Westerners charged and the profits they made. No one linked the West to the wider world and shaped perceptions of the region more than William F. Cody, known as Buffalo Bill. In 1883, trading on his fame as an army scout and buffalo hunter, Cody packaged the West in his Wild West Rocky Mountain and Prairie ex Exhibition. Rope twirling cowboys, world painted Indians, and Annie Oakley, celebrated as much for her beauty as for her aim with the gun, entertained audiences across the continent. For many Americans, Buffalo Bill's Wild West was the West, where six shooters administered justice, where Indians lived in teepees and made war on whites where romance and adventure obscured the realities of conquest, exploitation, and corporate control. Cowboys and Indians had been commercialized and packaged to be marketed across the globe. Cody took his trip to London, Paris, and even outer Mongolia. Examining the returns from 1890, the superintendent of the census noticed that land settlements in the continental United States now stretch so far that there can hardly be said to be a frontier line. One after another, Territories became states. Nebraska in 1867, Colorado in 1876, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Washington in 1889, Wyoming in 1890, Utah, 1896, Oklahoma, 1907, and New Mexico and Arizona in 1912. A new West was emerging as a frontierless mosaic of ethnicities, races, cultures, and climates with a shared identity of a single region much as the wider world was seeing its frontiers disappear. That sense of a regional identity was heightened for both Westerners and Southerners because so many of them felt isolated from the mainstream of industrial America. Ironically, it was not their isolation from Northern industry, but their links to it that marginalized them. The campaign for a new South to out-Yankee the industrial Yankee could not overcome the low wages and high fertility rates of an older South. The promoters of the West had greater success in adapting large-scale industry and investment to mining, cattle ranching, and farming. But they, too, confronted the limits of their region, whose resources were not endless and whose rainfall was fickle. What beckered the South and conquered the West was a vast new industrial order that was reshaping the entire Western world. It first took hold in Great Britain at the end of the 18th century, then spread to Europe and abroad. In the United States, the new machine age engulfed the North, and the East after the Civil War, nourished industrial cities from Pittsburgh to Chicago, and pulled millions of immigrants from Europe, Latin America, and Asia to work in its factories. By the turn of the 20th century, the new industrial order enriched the United States beyond imagining and linked American factories to the world at large as never before. Southerners and Westerners were being linked to the world economy as well. Cotton picked by sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta might end up in the petticoats of royalty. Longhorn cattle that grazed on the prairies of Texas fed the cities of Europe. And racialism, the widely accepted practice of categorizing people according to race, justified exploitation elsewhere in the world. Of coolie laborers who died by the thousands clearing the jungles of southern Asia for the British tea companies, or black miners in the Dutch-owned diamond mines of South Africa, just as it was used to thwart southern black sharecroppers or to drive Indians from their land. The small cotton growers in India, Egypt, and Brazil who faced plummeting prices were just as baffled by market e economics as cotton farmers in the American South, who found themselves deep in debt to merchants. 
One British official traveling to into a remote cotton-growing region of India reported that growers found some difficulty in realizing that by means of the electric telegraph, the throbbings at the pulse of the home markets communicate themselves instantly to Hingongat and other trade centers throughout the country. It was the pulse of home markets worldwide that controlled the fortunes of those in the cotton fields of India and the United States. A global industrial system increasingly determined interest rates, prices, and wages and wages that affected ordinary folk elsewhere. So I hope you guys learned something. It was a lot of information, I know, but you kind of see how America and the South and the West was all developing in this period following the Civil War and Reconstruction. Hope you guys liked it. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.